for some reason, pastors have the reputation of being golf players. Um, I am not a golf player. I've played golf. There's a world of difference between those two. Uh, and I've not played golf maybe for a couple years now. But I, I do have some, some highlights. You know, the, the things I play in the back of my mind when I want to think of myself as a golf player. It was uh, one time we had our church golf outing and we were at the Wendell Country Club and, and we played. And I think maybe it was the 12th hole. I can't forget which number it is, but it's a par three in the, in the back nine in which the hole is is guarded by water and uh, there's a little strip of land on the right and there were actually several folks here witnessed this shot uh that i made i can't remember who they were um it just all fades with this this shot and and uh you know when there's water in front of a hole it's always kind of fun i i I can't i bring a lot of balls with me and i'm thinking all right this is going to be at least two or three balls on this one and um I, i shot it and uh, instead of going up in the air like it ought to, it, it skimmed the water. And I thought, man, that's amazing. It's skimming it. But this, this hole is guarded, uh, not just by water, but in case somebody comes, some hacker comes and, and, and skips the, the ball onto the green, they have this wood palisade-type uh, barrier uh, in, in front of the hole. So it can't just skip on top. But there at the bottom of this wood is about a, a foot of, of earth bank between the water and the wood palisade. And it just happened to hit right in that little earth bank. And it hit it just right, so it popped up in the air and landed on the green. And I, I just, I was ecstatic because I thought, surely I lost this ball. I thought, and not only did I not lose it, it's on the green. And it's a part three, and I'm thinking, I've got a chance, you know. Now, uh, you would hear that, and you think, well, you know, that's not skill, Jared. That's, that's just pure luck. Uh, and I would agree, yeah. But what if I called that? I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to skim, skim it, skip it on the water, and I'm going to hit that little foot bank, and it's going to pop right on the green. Then you would be impressed, would you not? I mean, now we're talking about skill. That's just luck, but if you call it in advance, well, that's skill. Well, in Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to bring to your attention where Jesus calls Easter. He calls it in advance. He says, this is kind of what's going to happen. And there's, in fact, there's quite a few uh, sections in the New Testament before the uh, resurrection, where Jesus gives details. He calls in advance. He says, here's who's going to do it. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, it's, they're going to they're strike me. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. He starts telling them when it's going to happen. He talks about how many days he's going to be in a tomb. He talks about the resurrection. He talks about where he's going to meet the disciples after that. He's going to talk about what happens to the disciples. I mean... It's one thing to say, all right, that's pretty amazing. Jesus, you did some amazing things, but then he calls it in advance. He says, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. Now, you think, well, Jared, don't you know that the Gospels were written after Jesus resurrected? So they just included that beforehand. I mean, that's convenient when you can say uh, after what happened. And then, but let me, have you ever wondered why in the story of the resurrection, 
soldiers were put on guard in the tomb. I mean, that's not normal, right? Most, most folks don't have guards, Roman guards placed in tombs. Why did it happen? Because the Pharisees, the religious leaders, remembered Jesus calling it. They didn't, they didn't want to glorify Jesus calling things in advance. They don't want to glorify. The last ones that wanted Jesus to rise from the dead were the Pharisees and the religious leaders. But yet they said, put Roman soldiers on guard because that false teacher prophesied and said that there would be a resurrection. Consider that detail in the Easter event. Why is that there? It is because Jesus said in advance about the resurrection. It's, it, and, and we think, well, you know, this Bible is written by a bunch of men. They just put that in later. No, in the story itself, it happened. So Matthew chapter 12, uh, I want to take you to uh, a passage here. Just briefly, verse, uh, verse 38 to 41. And this is going to tie, for those of us who have been with uh with us the last few weeks. We've been talking about Jonah. And uh, I'm going to just bring to you that Jonah has something to do with Easter. I know I'm not going to be preaching on Jonah, but it has something to do with Easter because Jesus himself brings it together. And I want us to, to focus on, on that this morning uh, where he gives three prophetic statements. Uh, Jesus gives three prophetic statements concerning the resurrection. And so let's, uh, let's read this together and let's stand as we honor God's word. As we read this, you read silently as I read aloud to you. <clears throat> and some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You may be seated. This passage is not in response to some measure of faith from the religious leaders. In fact, they don't believe Jesus. And after all the miracles Jesus has done, they ask, you know what, can you give me one more sign? Who are you exactly? And Jesus doesn't play their game. He says, I'm not going to give you a miracle just to satisfy you. He says, all I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. And so uh, verse 39 talks about this a little bit. And, and we've learned a little bit about Jonah as we've looked at this together. Uh, Jonah, in the book of Jonah, actually gets quite a, a bad name. Um, Jonah, uh, basically, in a nutshell, for those who weren't here, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. He was a prophet of Israel uh, that badly needed a word from God. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria that represented the enemies of Israel. He doesn't want to go. Ninevites were cruel folks. I mean, they, they impaled people outside the city wall. They skinned them alive. Uh, put their skins on the wall. I mean, it was just gross, brutal type of stuff that goes on in Nineveh. Nineveh, the Syrians would one day wipe out Israel sometime after Jonah. So Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, but it's not because the people are so bad uh, in its, of itself. It's simply, as Jonah 4 tells us, he just doesn't like the Ninevites. He hates them and doesn't want to see them have any kind of mercy from God. As far as Jonah's concerned, let them all go to hell. 
is Jonah's perspective. And so when God gives this word to him, Jonah goes away. He doesn't go to Nineveh. He goes the opposite direction and runs away. God doesn't let that happen and creates a great storm. And in the storm becomes evident that Jonah is the source of the storm. Uh, and so they say, Jonah, the seafarers do, the seamen, what do we do? How do we stop this storm? Jonah, instead of saying, well, let me just repent, says, no, I tell you what, just throw me overboard. <laughs> I'd rather get thrown overboard in the middle of a storm than to repent and go to Nineveh. And he gets thrown overboard. Well, this is where the Bible says that God uh, points a great fish. We don't know what type of fish it is. A great fish that swallows uh, Jonah, and he stays alive in the belly of the well for three days. And you say, Pastor, can that really happen? And there, I'm sure there's all kinds of shows as to why this could or couldn't happen. And let me just tell you, I don't believe it could happen unless God does it. It's a miracle, all right? That's the essence of a miracle. It's not naturally able to happen. But if God can create a fish... And if God can create a man out of dust, then it's not too hard for God to create a fish that can swallow a man and keep him alive for three days. All right, I'm just saying. If we believe in God, or do we not? If God is all-powerful, then that's what an all-powerful God can do. And so he is in the belly of the well, and Jonah 2 is a a recollection of that time, a prayer uh, there. And then the, the Bible says that this uh, fish, uh, to, uh, well, just spits out Jonah. And, you know, it would have been gross. It would have been disgusting. It would have been repulsive on all kinds of levels. Uh, Jonah would have given the evidence of being in the fish, of whether it was just smelled funny. <laughs> um, you're talking about smelling bad. Um, I don't think there's any level of shampoo that can handle that. Uh, if there was any hair left uh, of that uh, sitting in digestive fluids, and uh, it would have been evident on his body. And so here Jonah says, okay, you know what? I can see that if I continue in my rebellion, it's going to get worse. I don't want to repeat that. Let me obey. Goes to Nineveh. His heart's not really in it. He doesn't love them still. And so he gives this Hebrew five-word message, eight words in English. <clears throat> Repent. All right, now he, didn't, he says, repent. He says, in 40 days, God's going to destroy you. And then he heads out of town. And he says, let me just watch this. 40 days, God's going to destroy you. But the Ninevites get this word and they go, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And they repent. They repent. And God chooses to relent and not just give them destruction. Jonah is furious over this, gets angry about this. And the question at the end of the book is simply, Jonah, is it really right for you to be angry about this? To be angry about plants and things like that that was providing him shade when there are 120,000 people that do not know the left from the right? And that's the question as it ends. Now, the thing about Jonah is that Jonah not only proclaims the message, he becomes a message just by his person. When someone's talking to Jonah, and of us say, Jonah, why do you stink so bad? Jonah, why do you look the way you do? What has happened? Why, why did you do this? And Jonah says, you've got to understand, I didn't want to come here. But God, uh, well, provided a great fish that swallowed me up, and, and, and they spit me up, and now I'm here. And, and then the, the message that would have been unavoided was that, look at what God has done so that you could hear this message. Look at the great love, the, the expense 
the effort that God went through. And so everywhere Jonah went, though he's proclaiming this five-word message, it could, have, it could have been avoided. What has God done to make sure I can hear this message? Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 12 that like Jonah became a sign, Jesus becomes a sign to us just by his person. Now, 120,000 people that we know of repent with a five-word message. That's pretty remarkable when you think about that. I mean, we've had some great revivals in our, in our nation. Uh, the Great Awakenings and, and the Second Great Awakening and the, the prayer revival in New York. And we've seen great things happen. But nowhere do we look in, outside of this where we see a, a, a historical event where 120,000, at least 120,000 people will repent at one five-word message. I mean, you're thinking, Jared, you know, you've already done a lot more than five words. You know? And, but yet they do. And so Jesus is saying, consider that. And consider how we're similar. I want to just talk to you a little bit about how Jesus and Jonah are similar and how they're different. First of all, Jonah hated the Ninevites. Jesus loved the world. Jesus loves you. Do you know that? Jonah ran away at the command of God. Jesus, the Bible says, set his face like a flint and went to the cross for you. Jonah would rather die than to see a city saved. Jesus did die to see all people become saved, to, to know the repentance and forgiveness of God. Jonah would rather be thrown overboard because of his sin. He was thrown overboard because of his sin. Jesus was thrown into God's wrath for your sin. Jonah was entombed by a great fish for three days. Jesus was entombed in the earth for three days. Jonah was entombed because of his own disobedience. Jesus was entombed because of your disobedience. Jonah was pressed by the weight of sin. In prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was pressed by the weight of your sin in the garden. Jonah escaped a great fish to proclaim a message. Jesus escaped the tomb to proclaim a great message to you. Jonah gave a message in order to save his own life. Jesus gave a message, though it cost his own life. Jonah became a sign of God's effort to save. Jesus becomes a sign of God's effort to save you. Jonah gave a five-word word, five message to repent. Jesus gave a three-year message in order that you would repent. Jonah gave a message of condemnation. Jesus gives a message of salvation. Jonah never even once talks about the forgiveness of God. In fact, he gripes about God's forgiveness. And that's what Jesus is saying. I've come to seek and save the lost. Jonah gave an appointed time for, jo for judgment. Jesus also gives an appointed time for ju judgment. Jonah saw the salvation of a city that was temporary. Jesus provides a salvation for all that is eternal. Jonah was angry outside the city because of salvation. Jesus is outside the city weeping and pleading for salvation. And that's why Jesus says, I'm like the sign of Jonah. But there's someone greater than Jonah that's here. Now, we keep on reading 
This is verse 41, uh, verse, um, verse 40. He says, I've given you this sign. First, now understand, the prophecy of Jesus' person being like a message of Jonah, that just his person is going to give this message. But then he gives a second prophecy. This is the one that pertains to Easter. The prophecy of Jesus' burial and, burial and resurrection, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, this is where Jesus calls in advance. I mean, it's no big deal, is it, for us to say, you know, one day I'm going to be buried. Nothing remarkable there. Anybody can make that prophecy. But then he says, and this is how long I'm going to be buried. <laughs> now, can we make that prophecy? Uh, I'm going to be buried for buried three days. What? That, what are you talking about? That's, he said, there's three days. That's it. Now, some of us look at that three days and think, well, you know, the timing must be off because, you know, that's, that's so many hours. But you need to understand in the Jewish way of thinking and talking that any part of a day, they would categorize that as the day. All right? So uh, just to understand that, that, that it's not saying that there's three entire days, but three parts of a day that, that Jesus is bringing out. So it could be, actually be as few as 26 hours spread out over three different days. And so that's the idea that Jesus is communicating uh, and using. Now, have you ever considered the reasons for the resurrection? I mean, that's, we can think of all kinds of reasons why we should not believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. Because no one does that. That's just not normal. How does that happen? But consider why to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, how do you explain the existence of the church apart from the resurrection? Have you thought about that? I mean, a whole church that's hinged on this one thing, Jesus rose again. If you can just discount that, if you can disprove that, then everything about the church is totally unhinged. Everything about Christianity is unhinged if you can just disprove that Jesus rose again. Have we lacked enemies as a church? I mean, is it for a lack of enemies that that's not been proven or disproven? Consider when Jesus rose again from the dead. Sometimes we think, oh, all right, this is what happened. But consider the context. There were a lot of people who wanted to disprove that Jesus rose again. I mean, that's the whole point of the Roman guards there to, to begin with. But yet, no one can produce a body. No one can produce a body. Some folks will say, well, the disciples just went to the wrong tomb. They just got, you know, they got confused. <laughs> okay, I could see how that might happen. But then there's a whole society that doesn't want to see Jesus rise from the dead. All they've got to do is say, well, hey, Peter. Yeah, okay, Pentecost, all right, yeah, you're talking about this. But look, 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 see, here's the tomb. Here it is, and let's roll away. See the bones? No one's able to do that, though there's all kinds of motives. Consider about how the church was born. What type of people was it? They were Jews. What's the thing about Jews? Jews believe in only one God, and that's their thing. That's what they're known for. They have a, a whole way of life that's built on pleasing this one God. Every day was saturated with events of saying there's just one God. And yet it's among these people that it, it comes that Jesus is God. That is the most unlikely group of people of which this faith is going to spread. Did you know that there are a lot of people who claim to be Messiahs before Jesus? A lot of people claim to be messiahs. In fact, in counseling, how do we deal with this, this movement of, of followers of Christ? One of the Jewish leaders, Gamaliel, said, you know what? There's others who have said this, but nothing comes of them. 
We don't have to do anything. It's going to fade away on its own. But if it doesn't, we might find ourselves against God. The very fact that it doesn't fade away because there's a resurrection. There are a lot of people that claim to be besides, but the only one of Jesus is the one that sticks throughout the years. Consider the disciples themselves. I mean, what's Peter? What's the story of Easter and talk about Peter? I mean, his claim to fame is that he does, says he doesn't know Jesus and kind of cusses him out for about for three times and runs away. And then all the other disciples, you see them fearful, running away. That the time when they discover uh, the resurrection, they're, they're in hiding. Except for John that's there with, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then 50 days later, next thing you know, Jesus is preaching before thousands, boldly saying that Jesus rose again. What happened between Jesus, uh, Peter denying Jesus three times, and now Jesus boldly proclaiming? Not only does he boldly proclaim, he continues to boldly proclaim. And not just Peter, but all the disciples boldly proclaim to the point of costing their own life. What happened? How do you account for the change of the life? Resurrection fits the bill. It fits the bill. You think about how the events carried out. I mean, who were the first witnesses? Mary, Mary, Joanna, the women that came to put ointment on the body. There for a little while were the only witnesses. What's astounding about that? We think, well, you know, mankind just wrote this story. Yeah, they just made it fantastical. But if man was writing that story in that day and time, they would not include that, that bit. Why? Because legally, in that day and time, women were not even regarded as credible legal witnesses in the court of law. Now, if you were a group of men and you're writing about the most significant event of history, of your faith, and the very first witnesses, would you, if you're making up the story, include that being women? Consider for just a little bit the evidence of the resurrection. Jesus calls it in advance. This is what's going to happen. Now, you know, here's the thing. Luke 16, 31, Jesus said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. Jesus knew that though he rose from the dead, it would not convince them because they did not want to believe. There are some of us here, we could have someone dead that we love and come up from the dead and tell us, you better trust in Jesus. You better repent. You could have someone come and tell us. And some of us still would not believe. It's, the, it's not a matter of, of can't believe. It's a matter that we don't want to believe. Because we lift up our own ways before God. Now let me take you to verse 41. Let me take you to the third prophecy of Jesus. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. All right. First of all, he's saying those people 700 years before himself, they're going to rise up. They're going to be resurrected. And not only will they be resurrected, he sees a day when his generation, 2,000 years ago, will die. And they too will also be raised up. And the folks from 700 years earlier, Ninevites with the folks of his day and time will be raised up together. They will be in the same space, same time together. He says, he's saying, there is going to be a time when everyone will be resurrected. Do you know that? Everyone will be resurrected. And the question is, 
for what purpose will you be resurrected? He says, the men of Nineveh will raise up, rise up at the judgment with the generation, this generation, and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Do you know that 97% of people today in America believe in the afterlife? So in a room like this, 97% of you, and it's probably more than that, but 97% of you believe in afterlife. Now, there's a lot less that believes in God. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? More people believe in afterlife than they believe in God. And it makes me wonder, what, what do they think is going to happen in the afterlife if you don't believe in God? 97 because, I mean, life is dismal with, apart from that. So here they are, 97% of us believe in the afterlife. Jesus is certainly saying, hey, that's going to happen. They're going to be resurrected. What's going to happen? I wanted to take you to a couple of texts just for us to consider. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, uh, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that says, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, some to shame, and everlasting contempt. There's going to be a great divide in this resurrection, according to Daniel, many years before Jesus. And so Jesus kind of echoes what Daniel said. And then after Jesus ascends to be with the Father, we have another prophecy in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 13. This is given to John. And John says he saw a great white throne. Him that sat on it, from whose faith the earth and heaven fled away. For there was no found, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things, which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. According to this passage, it tells of a judgment time in which everybody will be resurrected. And then it says, this is a, a fearful thing. In fact, it's, a, it's an event where people are running away. They're fleeing from They're trying to get away from this, but there's no place for them to go. I believe this is an event every one of us will witness one day. Every one of us will witness one day. Now, it talks about two, two standards of judgment. Have you ever asked someone, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? You, you believe you're going to go to heaven? The most common reply when I ask that question, do you believe you're going to heaven is, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Well, why do you hope so? Well, I'm just trying to do the best I can. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm a good person. I try to be good. And so that's the logic. That's where most of us probably may fit into uh, if asked that question. There's two standards of judgment. One, there's the standard of judgments for those people who say, you know what, I'm going to do the best that I can. And I'm going to be really good. God will indulge that standard, if you will. But then there's another standard. If you notice, he says there's, there's a book of life, and then there are books of deeds. And it says everyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be judged according to the books of deeds. How do you get into the book of life? The book of life is, a, is, a, is saying that they are living to God, the eternal one. That's where Jesus comes in. He says, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In other words, it's for those people who understand that there is sin in their life. There's a need for forgiveness in their life. That it doesn't really matter how good you are. There's all these other bad things. And what do we do with that? And we say, Jesus, can you help us? And Jesus said, I've come for that purpose. To seek you and to save you from God's wrath for your sin. And that's where Jesus' death of the cross comes in and says, Hey, I will pay the penalty of sin when Jesus says, I am forsaken by God. And he's buried, buried into a earth in the tomb and he comes up to, to walk again to say that I am providing eternal life. If you will not keep trying but instead start trusting, faith is not just believing these things happen. Do you understand that? Belief is not just believing these things happen. Faith is not just saying, yeah, I believe that Jesus is God. Faith is treasuring that, trusting in that, holding on to that. If I'm going to say I believe this chair holds me up, I'm going to have to sit in it for you to really understand and for me to understand I'm trusting in it. This is what it means. In fact, the Bible says that Satan believes in the word of God. Satan believes that God exists and even trembles at this. The demons do this. The difference is what we trust in and hold on to and to say, Jesus, you are my Savior. For those that do that, their name's written in the book of life. But if you say, you know what, that sounds hokey. Uh, I'm still going back to living life of how I want to live. Then Jesus provides, okay, I'll indulge you. And he gives you the books of your deeds. And I believe all of us will see this. And those of us who are written in the book of life, we're going to want to flee away. Even the, I believe that even the angels are going to want to flee away. Because we will see. We will see people. We may see people that are right here. Come before the judge. And they said, I hope I do okay. I just tried the best that I could. And the books are opened up. And... The details of their life are revealed before God. Every opportunity we had to hear Jesus Christ died for you. Every opportunity that I believe that even this moment right now may be written in a book for you. For you to see, I heard the gospel, but I decided to live my own way. I'm going to live how I want to live. And the books are opened up and said, see, on this date, on April 8, 2012, there was someone that shared the word of God that explained this to you, that you could have forgiveness and you rejected it so that you can live your own way. Now, let's look at your ways. Look at what you did. You did some good things, but all the while, it's about yourself and you view life as for yourself. And what about that sin that you did? What about that lie you told yourself and you told your parents and you told your others? What about time of greed? What about that moment of lust there in your heart? What about that time when you said to God, you know what, God, I hate you for what you said and did. What about those moments? How do you recount for that? Why is these books given out? They're given out so that when judgment comes, everyone including the judge, will know that the judgment of God, of eternal separation from God, is absolutely just in it being sentenced to us. The Bible says, Jesus said, there's going to be a resurrection. And in that moment, let me just 
bring to you what Jesus says. These guys that used to flay people alive, impel people, brutal folks of Nineveh, who heard the message of Jonah and repented. They said, God's going to destroy us, and they repented. They're going to be there. They're going to be there and said, how could you? How could it be? We just heard Jonah, but you have available to you the words of Jesus. You, you knew about Jesus dying on the cross and rising up from the dead. You celebrated an Easter. You knew about forgiveness that was available. You knew about that. And you rejected it. Notice what it says. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for the repentance of the preaching of Jonah. Who were the listeners of Jesus' day? At this time, they were extremely religious. They were known for it. How they dressed, what they ate. Strict discipline. And Jesus calls them, you're an evil, adulterous generation. Wow, that's a little harsh. <laughs> Tells me that you could be the most diligent church attender. You can be a giver to the poor. You can be a person who prays. You could be a good ethical person. You could have your personal code of conduct and say, what of all things, I am myself. At least I'm not like these other. As a pastor, I'm glad you're talking to these other church folks here. They need this. But I've got my own code of ethics. And whatever, I'm going to be myself. You, you lay it to those hypocrites. <laughs> you know, we're all in that same boat. Where we've got that side to us. Discipline. And here Jesus calls these religious folks evil and adulterous. Men of Nineveh will condemn you. It's not anything to do with your discipline. It's not anything to do with your religion. Your attempts at getting right with God. has everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. Do you treasure that? Do you trust in that? Is your whole life dependent on that one thing of what Jesus Christ did for you? You know, there's a fellow by the name of Harry Truman lived at, near St. Helens. He was a friendly four-year-old uh, owner for four years of this uh, lodge, mountain lodge near Mount St. Helens. It's on the south shore of Spirit Lake. Lodge was his home with his 16 cats, known as the cat guy. So he spent his lifetime there on the slopes of Mount St. Helens and kind of had this weird friendship saying that this mountain's my friend. You know, sometimes we do that with the stuff around us. So when the volcano woke early in 1980, he had made a decision that he and his cats would not leave. As spring progressed, the volcanic activity just grew more and more terrifying and violent. In fact, to the point where the governor of the state of Washington just kind of set out a decree that this was going to be a restricted entry zone. Everybody was to get out, unless you were some kind of scientist security personnel who was there for a very specific reason, you needed to get out. Even then, 
Perry would not leave. On Saturday afternoon, May 17, 1980, state officials tried for what would be the last time to get Perry out. He wouldn't go. The next morning, Mount St. Helens exploded. The whole north side of the mountain collapsed. A giant avalanche of rock and debris that roared across the lodge nearly 100 miles an hour, totally destroying the lodge, burying the site to a depth of about 50 meters. There's no trace of Perry, all these caps. We read that and we think, Perry, how could you be such a fool? How tragic to hold on to your sense of home. Only thing you knew to the point of losing your life. Listen, Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses it, his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Some of us were thinking, you know what, Pastor, it sounds great. I want this forgiveness, but I don't really want to trade what I think is my life if it means I have to follow Jesus Christ. That's too high of a price. I like this little plot of land. I like this thing I call my life. And I honestly don't want to lose how I live my life, what I find comfort in, identity in, if it means I have to follow Jesus Christ. You're living in a bubble, a fantasy bubble, that says that all that matters is all the things that you can see. Jesus says there's going to be a day and time when the things that you see will not be anymore. And what will it matter if you get all the things that you want in your life if you know you're going to lose them? So if you're going to lose your house, your car, your family, your job, your life anyway, then why don't you lose it for an eternal purpose if you're going to lose it Every single one of us, we're going to lose it. It wasn't a matter if you gain all the goals you want in your life, but you lose your soul. What will you trade for your soul? Here's what you'll trade for your soul. It's whatever your reason is for not following Christ. That's what you're trading for your soul. I want to invite you this Easter. I could not think of anything better than to make the resurrection message your own. To say, Jesus, I want to make you my Savior, my Lord. I want to give my life to you. I don't want to go anymore based on what I do and think and hope that maybe I'll be right with you. I want to get my life right with you, not by what I do, by what Jesus has done, and I want to trust him for my own. I'm going to lead us all in a prayer.